the title is, How Could One Man Affect So Many? This is part two of that. And we are back here into Romans. There are so many things on my heart as I go through here. And I, I do honestly feel so inept at dealing with this passage. So many greater men of God than myself have expressed their own frustration in mining all the truth that is here. And having uh, already gone back through it again this week, the first time I taught it in this church and the other building that we used to have, I remember being up till two in the morning, just, just reading and reading and praying and praying. On Saturday night, I was up again last night till 1.30, just reading and reading and praying, praying. Still felt as though I didn't have my arms completely around everything that is here. And that is because the Bible is alive. And the genius of the Apostle Paul is so extreme. And take that genius, supercharge it with the work of the Holy Spirit to an inspired level that the thoughts become Scripture. And then to come along behind all that, to read it and to think about it, this is not the kind of a section you can just grab and run with. I really do encourage you to continue to mine out the truth that is here. One of the main reasons is that talking to people in the ministry and having dealt with so many lives for so many years, it is so apparent to me that too many of us live with too little rest. And I don't mean physical rest, I mean rest in our souls. Because we live between our own two ears, because so much of our sin that we commit is not even outward, and because there's such a pile of it, over the years, we tend to live internally a lot of the time in condemnation. We're condemning ourselves long after God has forgiven and forgotten. We're walking around meditating on it. <laughs> Sadly, we are too often too preoccupied with our own selves and our own sin and our own weaknesses as opposed to a full-blown, intense preoccupation with Jesus Christ and His strength and the fullness of His sacrifice for us on the cross and what He has done. And I think the genius of the passage is that it draws us up and away and out from ourselves to Adam. And then from Adam, once we understand how he could be the representative for the whole human race, it takes our gaze off of Adam and turns us over to Christ and with the intention of keeping us there and I think part of the complexity of the passage is intended to so engage us that we have to keep thinking about it so that we can keep on thinking about Christ and get out of ourselves and get into the rest that God has for us. I read this week about a, a very tired father. He was bone weary and he came into his home just dog tired late one evening with one desire in his mind, and that was to sit down and relax after the unbelievable pressure of the day with deadlines and demands. And he just couldn't wait to get into his big easy chair and settle back in quietude and reverie and relax and unwind a little bit. No sooner did he slide back into his big easy chair than his five-year-old son jumped on his lap with a big grin and said, Daddy, let's play! And he thought, oh, no, 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 no. As much as I love my son, I know I need to spend time with him. This is not the time. So what he did is he had to think very quickly, and he saw the newspaper laying nearby that had an article on a recent 
moon probe and there was a gigantic picture of, of the world, the whole globe of the world. And he told his son, he said, could you run and grab a pair of scissors? And his son brought back the scissors. He said, bring some uh, scotch tape as well. And he brought it back and he took the, the big picture of the world and he just cut it into little tiny pieces. Then he gave it all to his son. He said, here now, you go take this puzzle and you work on this for a while. And when you have it all put back, the whole world put together perfectly, then you bring it back to me and then we'll play and his son scampered down the hall. He thought, whew, got a couple of hours at least before he's going to be back. Ten minutes later, <laughs> ten minutes later, his son comes back in. And he had the whole thing taped together perfectly and stunned. The father asked him, he said, how did you do that so fast? And the boy said, ah, oh, daddy, it was easy. You see, there's a picture of a man on the back. And he said, all you have to do is put the man together. <laughs> and the whole world comes together on the other side. I read that and I thought, hallelujah, that is it, isn't it? You just get together in your mind the man Jesus Christ. You just put him together as Paul puts him together on the pages of this passage. And your whole world comes together so easily. But you just get your eyes away from Christ. You live your life without Christ and your world will remain in disconnected pieces that are unmanageable. This section presents Christ in a way that is absolutely monumental. The Bible says in the book of Acts chapter 4 verse 12 that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus, the man, Jesus Christ, is the only way to get your world together. He is the only way. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Right there he is in chapter 1 verse 16 and rather than going on he stops and he begins to worship God and he says to the king eternal, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible and then this, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He just starts shouting hallelujah as he reflects on his own sin how great it was. And on the great grace of God to save him and to use him as an example that God could save anybody. And then to think of what he does after he saves us. And in this passage, it is that man writing. The man that persecuted the church, that kicked down doors of houses and drug families off and parents away from their children, children away from their parents imprisoned them, saw to it they, they were tortured, saw to it that some of them were sent to their death. A man who was responsible for leading so many in the wrong direction and bore the burden of that guilt so deeply. He looks back on all of that and he marvels that the grace of God in Jesus Christ could not only forgive all of that, but turn his life around in such a way that he could spend it 
leading so many in the right direction. He just has to stop and marvel and worship God. And I'll tell you, to me, that is the effect of this passage. It is so engaging to me. It works like this. In chapter 1, Paul gets into chapter 1, and after he mentions the power of the gospel unto salvation, verse 16 and 17, he goes on to begin to list off the sinfulness of the human race. He even gets detailed, and he drags out into the light sins and gives them names. And from there, he plunges into the depths of sin, and he brings to your awareness your own sinfulness, your specific sins. And on into chapter 2 and, and on into chapter 3 until he suddenly hits the grace of God and justification by faith toward the end of chapter 3. And then into chapter 4. It's all by grace, by faith. And he gives Abraham as an example. He gets into chapter 5 and he starts listing off the benefits of standing in grace, peace with God and so on. And then he gets to this point. And at this point in verse 12, running through the end of the chapter... What he does is he's, he's pulling it all together. So far in his teaching, he's raised the issue of the law, the Mosaic law, which is critical to the Jew. He has to deal with it to help them unplug from all of that and be free and trust Christ only. So he touches on that again. He's dealt with universal human guilt. And so he goes to the source of all of that in this passage. But the main thing that he does that I want you to see that is so critical... And this, to me, becomes life-changing, literally, as a Christian. It can become the turning point for you. What he does is he, he ceases to deal with our sins, as it were, and he turns to deal with one sin. It's as if he's sitting across the table from you and he says, quit thinking about your sin, quit thinking about your life. I want you to think about one other life and one other sin. And it's Adam. And I want you to focus solely on him. And I want you to realize, in the teaching of the passage, he's effectively saying, I want you to realize what he did was done in the place of all of us and affects all of us. What he did represented all of us. The issue is not your sins at this point. It is his one sin. And I want you to realize how your acts of sin really are disconnected from his one sin. And yet, his act of sin cannot be disconnected from you. It's to focus you on the act of one man, something done where you weren't even there in, in terms of being here today, that has such a dramatic effect on you. To get you thinking in terms of how God operates so that once you get that, you can turn to embrace Christ in a way as never before. And then with the much mores and the therefores and all this abounding stuff, He takes you higher and higher and higher. And, it, and if, once you understand it, it continues to unfold and unfold and unfold throughout your life. And what it does is He shows us here that one act, the one act of Adam, set us down on the record as sinners, the whole race. And then, realizing your own deeds now as a person alive had nothing to do with that, but yet affected you, then he turns and he effectively, in speaking of our works and our deeds and whatever we could do to please God, that had nothing to do with what Christ did at the cross. So my individual works and deeds 
really don't have anything to do with what happened with Adam, but Adam affects me. And my works and my deeds don't have anything to do with what Christ did at the cross, but how indeed that affects me. And what it does is it has a way, as you begin to understand it, of liberating you from trying to ease your conscience and your guilt and your bad behavior with some kind of behavior. To trust in Christ and His act on your behalf alone. It is the most liberating of all Christian truths. Let's read through the passage, get it fresh in our mind, and we'll work through it quickly and finish it off today. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, just as a side thought, you know, you think about evolution. If we're really evolving, why does everybody keep dying? I mean, if we're really evolving, how come we don't want to evolve right out of this death process? Nothing really has changed. The account in Genesis is the true account. That's just a side thought. It has nothing to do with the message. But let's move on. Verse 13, For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, and you'll notice every time he brings up the one man, his offense, whatever, he deals with a different issue that flows out of it. Either it's the reigning of death or it's obedience or it's not repetition, it's unfolding. Verse 17 again, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners... So also, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law, and now he ties together everything from chapter 1 to this point. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've already looked at the concept, the contrast, and we're going to get in the comparison, the conclusion. But we have here in this passage in front of us a challenge to us intellectually. Truth cannot be applied until it's understood intellectually. Then it can sink down into our hearts, embraced, 
by our hearts, it can become a part of our lives. You have to work in a study like this. To work, to understand, is to a large degree to render us unable to stop and just savor the understanding. That's why I'm saying this passage, if you want to be freed from a life of preoccupation from, with yourself and your sin and your weakness, this passage demands further attention and meditation so you can move from grasping to understand to really understanding to the state of savoring and enjoying. And that's why I'm saying it needs more attention so you can enjoy in the future what you're laboring to understand today. Now this concept of the one man, we looked at it, where in verse 12, sin entered the world, and then death entered, and then death spread to all men. And then in verse 13 and 14, death reigns over all. In verse 13, you have a statement. I want to revisit this. You have a statement. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. This statement is not the biggest issue in the passage. But it may in fact be the biggest distraction. So that it deserves a little more attention just to help us in our thinking. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. The distraction of verse 13 is, how could there be sin but not have it imputed? The feeling is, how could there be sin? It's as if God is saying that if there's not a law there, then he doesn't hold you accountable. And that's where the confusion and distraction comes. Listen to the words of John Murray. He's very helpful on this. Yet from Adam to Moses... Death reigned even over them that had not sinned after the likeness of Adam's transgression. Over those who, unlike Adam, stood outside the pale of special revelation and did not therefore openly and willingly violate a clear positive command of God. Paul's assumption, now follow this thought. Paul's assumption is that this universal reign of death cannot be explained except by the transgression of an expressly revealed commandment. And since that cannot be laid to the charge of each and every member of the race, especially when the Mosaic Law isn't there, the only sin that can account for it is the sin of Adam and the participation of all in that sin. He goes on to say, in the concluding clause of verse 14, Adam is said to be a figure of him that was to come. It is because Adam's one act of disobedience is imputed to others or accounted to others whose activity was not personally and voluntarily engaged in its performance that is here described as a type of Christ. For as the sin of Adam was the ground of our condemnation, so the righteousness of Christ is the ground of our justification. Adam's one sin sufficed to ruin the race, but Christ's obedience conferred righteousness upon his people, just as death reigned over those who did not sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression. So the apostle is chiefly interested 
in demonstrating that men are justified who do not act righteously after the similitude of Jesus Christ. The whole point is to disconnect you from the idea that somehow your works enter in here. This is so critical because so much of the world grows up in traditional religion. One cannot discount the worldwide influence of the Roman Catholic Church. One cannot discount the inbred teaching that your works make up a big portion of whether you get to heaven or not. To grow up as a Jew is from the day you're old enough to listen to be pumped with the reality in those days that you had to live out the law. And that to a very great degree, every one of your works counted toward whether you get to heaven or not when you die. The whole teaching here is designed to disconnect you from that. When he says that until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law, he picks us up again at the very end, and there is some great advice to come out of that. Listen to the words of William Newell. It will never do to go about counting, and this is deep and liberating, it will never do to go about counting ourselves justified in the sense of merely of having our own trespasses, those we have committed, forgiven. For this would amount to counting ourselves as innocent before we personally sinned, and to have become guilty merely because we personally sinned. He said, but this is to forget that we were all made sinners by Adam's act, not our own. Nor does this mean, this is really good, nor does this mean that Paul is here dealing with the fact that we got our sinful nature from our first parents, so we're held guilty because we each have a sinful nature. Because by nature we are indeed children of wrath. And David declares, in sin did my mother conceive me. Let me stop here and explain what he means. This is a profound thought. I have a sinful nature. He will deal with that in chapter 6 in detail. But the point is, in chapter 5, he is not saying you're held accountable for your sin because you're born with a sinful nature. He's saying the whole human race is held accountable for sin because of the one act that Adam did. Period. 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 And you've got to divorce that in your thinking from anything else that has to stand alone. That's why we die. Because of his act. Yes, I'm born with a sinful nature, but that's a different issue. I die because of Adam's one act. When you get that settled in your mind, you're ready to go on and really embrace the one act of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say this, Romans 5 does not talk of a nature of sin received by us from Adam, but being made guilty by his act. We were so connected with the first Adam that we did not have to wait to be born or to have a sinful nature. But when Adam, our representative, acted, we acted. Thus we were condemned, which is a forensic word. It belongs in a courtroom, not in a birth chamber. And one of the greatest analogies to me of this is when you're studying Hebrews and you read that Levi, who received the tithes of the people... Actually, Levi paid tithes in Abraham when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. 
when Abraham met Melchizedek, after he conquered the kings that have taken off all the people in Sodom, he gave tithes to Melchizedek. It was either a type of Christ in the Old Testament or Christ himself appearing. And just following the train of thought, you realize that the writer of the Hebrews is saying that God says of Levi, who was not yet born, and whose father was not yet born, and whose grandfather Isaac was not yet born, that he actually paid tithes in Abraham. In other words, Levi was there in Abraham when he paid tithes to Melchizedek. It's the same concept. It's also foreign to our thinking, but it's almost like whoosh, fly by. But once you get it, you've got it permanently. And once you get it, it affects your rest in Christ in a permanent way. So, the issue here is Adam's one act. The world is condemned, the human race is condemned, they die physically because Adam's one act. The sinful nature will be dealt with in the next chapter. So we look at all of this and Adam is a type. We looked at the contrast of the results, the quantity, the certainties, and, and so on. And in verse 17 he says, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, then, on the contrary, on the other hand, through the one man's offense, verse 18, judgment came to all resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. We come now to the third main thought. That's the comparison here. And this is where it gets really good. Because by now, it should be clear to you that, okay, people die because of Adam's sin. His offspring died. There was a day in court in the Garden of Eden. God passed a judgment. As a result, everybody dies. I understand that. That's clear now. But if it is clear, then there should be a question that is now lurking in the back of your mind. And either it's already been there or it's freshly, newly there. And it becomes this. Okay, I understand it, but it's not fair. Now, have you ever thought that? Come on, be honest. I know you've thought that. If you, if you haven't thought that, you don't think. <laughs> you've thought it. You have to have thought it. I mean, and I'll tell you when you've thought it. You've thought it in your worst moments. When you're doing lousy. And then right in the middle of doing horrible. You stop and you think, I hate Adam. And you think, well, no. It wasn't his fault. God scooped up some dirt and there he was. He made him. He was alive. He made a mistake. Yeah, but it was God who set up the system. I'm mad at God. Here I am having a problem with this sin, right? Somewhere, I mean, you don't want to even tell people you know because you're too mature now as a Christian to leak out such doubts, right? But it's there, and in your worst of times, you're thinking, it's not fair. Have you ever thought that? Well, let's put it into perspective. You think it's not fair because if you were there you would have handled it differently. Oh, is that right? Warren Wearsby helped me so much on this because I have thought that many times. This isn't fair. I didn't ask to be born, first of all. I didn't put in any requests because I didn't exist. 
I didn't ask to be born, and I didn't ask to be born a sinner, and I didn't ask to be born into this loop. This isn't fair. Warren Wiersbe, probably one of the most well-read Christians on earth, and a great thinker, he says this. Skeptics sometimes ask, was it fair for God to condemn the whole world just because of one man's disobedience? The answer, of course, is that it was not only fair, it was also wise and gracious. And then he goes on to say this. To begin with, if God had tested each human being individually, the result would have been the same. What? Disobedience. But even more important, by condemning the human race through the one man, Adam, God was then able to save the human race through the one man, Jesus Christ. He said, because you see, each of us is racially united to Adam. We are his offspring, so that his deed affects us. He says, now think of the fallen angels. Fallen angels cannot be saved because they are not a race. In other words, God created each angel individually. They're not, angels don't give birth to other angels. God created each angel individually. He said he created each angel individually. They sinned individually. They are judged individually. And he said, there can be no representative to take their judgment for them and save them. But because you and I were lost in Adam, our racial head, we can be saved in Christ, the head of the new creation. Thus, God's plan is both wise and gracious and fair. At that point, thank God for Adam. Right? Because now the pressure is put on Adam and Christ. And that is what God is concerned with. Thus, I can personally take the pressure off me. See, my big problem is, is that God forgives me, but sometimes I have a hard time forgiving me. God doesn't have a hard time forgiving you. And this teaching is critical to getting to the point where you can say, you know what? Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. You know what? My obedience is lousy, but his obedience was perfect. And it's imputed to me, to my account. Therefore, I can come to God. I can expect to be blessed. I can walk with God. My obedience will get better as I go along. But thank God for Christ. You see, this is the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now, the conclusion then of all of this, verses 20 and 21, this is so wonderful. Where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. He says in verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. There is no question in my mind that Paul has his own conversion on his heart at this point. There is no question in my mind that Paul has the whole history of the nation of Israel on his mind at this point. He says here, technically, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, he's just said sin was already there all along. The Jew would say, well, then what's the purpose of the law? A thinking Christian would say that. 
Okay, so why the law? Well, the law entered that the offense might abound. What does that mean? This is fascinating. Sin is already there. God brings along the Mosaic law. It enters that the offense might abound. What it means is the the Mosaic law comes along. Here's sin already there. And it begins to articulate the sins. It begins to categorize them. The sin is there, but now it begins to drag them one by one out into the light and give them names. Adultery. Stealing. Lying. Killing. Paul said, I wouldn't known covetous except by the law. He gets to that in in, uh, Romans 7. That's where his conversion came when he realized he was all right outwardly, but it was inward that he was a major sinner. So the, the law comes along and articulates sin. So the offenses begin to abound as they're given names and divided up into categories. So you realize the, the law says, don't lie. I, I realize I'm a liar. Have you realized that yet? You liars, you all lie. <laughs> the law comes along and says, don't lie, you lie. And it says, don't steal, you steal. And then, and then what happens is that you begin to realize you're trying to stop these things now because the law says don't. And you try to stop. And there you go, you lie again. I swear I'll never lie again. And you lie again. And then you do all these other things. And, and then what happens is that the offenses begin to pile up and you begin to realize, man, not only can I not stop lying, I can't stop doing this. I can, and all you go down the list of the law, I just, I, I'm, I can't stop any of these things. Why? Well, because you're a sinner. And you're bound in this. And what happens then is that the law was given that the offenses would abound to drive you in desperation to Christ. Paul says in another place that the law was dispatched from God as a servant on an errand. A schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. To point out your endless sins that you're helpless to overcome. And the the guilt that piles up from that and drive you to the only solution in Jesus Christ. Yes, you're this way because of him, Adam. But you can get through this and out of this through him, Christ. The law entered that the offenses might abound. Now there's a further thought here. The law was never given to save anybody. Nobody ever went to heaven because of the law. Neither was the law ever given that people would end up going to hell. The law was given for one reason, to drive people to Christ, specifically the whole nation of Israel. But there's another thing about the law entering the defense might abound. Do you understand that the law coming alongside sin aggravates the sin condition so that And this applies to you as a Christian because if you're trying to please God with do's and don'ts, you're going to be miserable. The law comes along and aggravates the sin condition. It says, don't do that. The problem with the sin condition is essentially simple. Satan said, the day you eat of this tree, you will become a god. You want to be a god? Yes. Then eat the tree. So they did. The problem with man and his original sin is he doesn't want anybody telling him what to do. He wants to be God, right? Satan said, I will become God and I will call the shots. He doesn't want anyone telling him what to do. The same thing is at the heart of our sinfulness. So the law comes along and says, don't. And and the sinful condition says, oh yeah? The law says, don't do that. And the sinful condition says, don't tell me what to do. I'll do it. 
And so thou shalt not. So I'll do it anyway. And you try it and you like it. <laughs> you try a shalt not and you like it. And then you come along to another thou shalt not. And you go, I will too. And you I like that one too. And you find all these other thou shalt not. So I like them all. And so just you just live in rebellion before God. Racking them up. You know all about this. You're walking along and you see a sign and it says, Do not walk on the grass. And you think, Oh, shut up. Who are you anyway? <laughs> and across the grass you go, right? Wet paint. Do not touch. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> right? You know all about this. The liner that the offense might have brought. It aggravates the sin condition because of this desire to be God, which is man's original sin. And the law comes along and says, don't, don't, don't. And the sinful nature says, I will too. Don't tell me what to do. And so the offense then abounds. And so what happens is rather than helping you, it only makes you worse. Because it draws out the activity of the sin nature. Which then puts you in a worse condition before God. And thus, you begin to see your great need for the Savior. That's why he says, where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. This, to me, is a statement that every single one of us need to learn. We need to learn it and apply it to ourselves. If you're not saved, you need to learn it today and get saved today, get forgiven today. We need to learn it so we can use it in witnessing. We've dealt so much with the human race. Let's talk about Israel. God graces this people. Never was there a people chosen to be named by the Lord's name and called after His name and dealt with personally as Israel. He leads them out of Egypt. What a favored, honored position for a people. Moses goes up to the mountaintop to receive these detailed laws. What did the people do? Now at the bottom, oh, they call a prayer meeting. They fast and pray and wait on the Lord for further instruction. No, they're at the bottom of the mountain. And somebody says, hey, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. Let's make a calf and celebrate them. And they make a golden calf. And they start this big party. We don't need to go into the details of the party, but the details of the party are unbelievably immoral and sinful. Meanwhile, Moses is waiting on God on the mountaintop. So here are these graced, privileged, honored people, privileged to have a personal relationship with God as a nation, and they are in full-blown sin and wickedness and perversion and rebellion at the bottom of the mountain. Now, you would think that God will wipe them all out. Sin is abounding as God is giving out His law on the top of the mountain. Instead, what God does is rather than wiping them all out, he gives them Moses as a mediator. I won't talk to you directly, but I'll let you continue as a people, and you have Moses as a mediator. And they go on as a nation, and they continue with their rebellion to God all the way up to the point that they take their Messiah and they kill him. Sin is abounding. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Literally, overflow. There are two words that are translated into English from the Greek, abound. One has to do with increasing, like sin increasing, abound. The other word has to do with 
and overflowing beyond measure. And that is the word here. And overflowing beyond measure. Here is this nation that has sinned and rebelled and sinned and rebelled. And now they crucify their own Messiah, deicide. They try to kill God himself. Sin is abounding. And there at the cross, grace begins to overflow as Jesus Christ says, Father, forgive them. And it overflows. And you see, let's get off Israel to you. Here you are, racking up sins in your life. Don't tell me what to do. I'll be my own man. I'll think I'm my own. I'll find my own way to God in my own good time, my own way. Don't tell me I can't do this. I like that. Don't tell me get off cocaine. It's sinful. It's the greatest thing in my life. I love it. Don't tell me to stop fornicating. I don't want to. Don't tell me to marry this girl I live with. I don't want to marry her. I just want to live with her. Don't tell me to move out. Don't tell me this. Don't tell me that. There you are, racking up your sins. And here's God. He has every reason to send you into oblivion. He has every reason to exile you right now into hell forever to join the devil who you follow with your life and your thinking your behavior instead where sin abounds grace does overflow that statement Father forgive them continues to echo on to be repeated in the gospel it's offered to you today do you know Jesus Christ today? or are you just sort of lurking? are you just kind of lurking around God's people? ah yeah this friend pressured me to come on in here today well then they're probably all right. Let's talk about you. You're not. Oh, no, this is why I didn't want to come. Here we are. We're at it right now. You're in my face about it. That's right. That's why they brought you. So I could do it and they'd be off the hook. <laughs> but listen, your sin has abounded. Grace is overflowing. God is waiting to wash it all away, to forgive and to forget. And then to so work in your heart by the Holy Spirit that you too can forget. My life before Christ is a wretched mess. It could all be summed up in one word, perversion. <gasps> oh, you were a pervert before Christ? Our pastor was a pervert. I got news for you. So were you. We were created in the image of God. Any fall, any person falling short of the glory of God is a pervert because it is a perversion of the glory of God. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, all in perversion of what God created us to be. But how wonderful to come to Christ to confess your sin, to read where sin has abounded, grace is overflowing. And to see Christ rush in and with that crimson tide of his blood wash away every single sin of your whole life. Forgive you in a moment of time. Open your heart and let him do it. You're living in emptiness. You're living in darkness. You cannot control yourself and you're wrecking your life. He will rescue your life from all of that. And you know the greatest thing about real Christianity is you can still be a person. You don't have to put on a robe. You don't have to walk around and burn incense. You know, one of the greatest things of this passage is it's designed to liberate you from that. So many of you grew up with traditional religion. Incense and peppermints and 
meaningless nouns. Turn on, tune in. I'm sorry. These things go through my head in sermons. You have no idea of what goes. Trying to act all holy and stick to the Bible and preach, and I'm still human up here. But these things are designed to free you from that because those things could never free you. Where sin has abounded, grace has overflowed. Have you let him overflow that grace in your life? I encourage you right now, open your heart. You say, well, I don't know how to talk to God. I mean, I like don't know how to talk to Him. I'm like a sinner, you know. Yeah, I know. I am one. Just talk to Him. Do you know that the gospel is saying yes to God? That's what it is. To become a Christian, to be saved, is to say, okay. It's to say yes when your whole life you've said no. It's to say, Lord, I've, I've come, I've been listening, I've been... I know, what's, I know it now, but I'm, I know inside I haven't let go. It's to say, I let go. It's to say, take me, I'm yours. You can give a perfect articulated prayer. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I believe you died on the cross and rose again for me. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Lead me and guide me, I'll follow you. Take me to heaven when I die. You can come to Christ just like that. Or you can pray that prayer and it can be meaningless. Why? Because God just wants you. He wants your heart. He wants you to crown Him as Lord. He wants you to say, The sin has abounded in my life, Lord Jesus. I realize now your grace has abounded. Your unmerited love. You died for my sin. I sent you to the cross. Not the Jews. Not the Romans. I did. And from that point, begin to own your own evil. And take it to Christ and let Him free you right now. And you know what? It'll change everything. It will change everything. Every relationship in your life will change when you begin the one relationship with Him. You'll never fix your relationships in your life until you fix your relationship with God. And you can do it right now. It's a gift. You just have to believe this is all true. Say, Lord, I believe it. Take me. I'm yours. And just let Him take you. Where sin abounded, grace overflowed. You know, you... We realize the only way to handle the damage by the fall is the grace of God. He says, as sin reigned, verse 21, in death, so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's just a picture of the bondage and death and sin and the life in Christ and all that comes with it. You know, I think of David in the Old Testament. I think of Adam and Eve. They sinned and God rushed in. Rushed in with the gospel. I think of... David and a man after God's own heart and his sin with Bathsheba and all the evil and, and God rushes in and he should have died according to the law. But the law was given to drive men into the grace of God and Nathan the prophet says, you shall not die. He should have. God has put away your sin. I think of Manasseh. He is the wickedest man on the pages of Scripture, really. And at the end of his life, when he is dying, he proclaims the Lord to be now the Lord his God. This is grace. I think of John Newton. How many of you here are familiar with the hymn Amazing Grace? I'll bet you could just start reciting it even now, couldn't you? I mean, even Elvis sang Amazing Grace, right? <laughs> Everybody knows about Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. John Newton wrote that. He was a wretch. We live in an immoral world now. He did too. He was a slave trader, and he used to go from England down to Africa. And 
He would go into the jungles and he would just kidnap people right out of their homes. Drag them chained, literally, and throw them into the sweaty, filthy, wretched holds of these sailing ships. And then he and the sailors would have their way with the women on those journeys. It was a wretched, filthy, wicked life he had. And he sunk to the bottom. He was thrown off the ship by an attempt to kill him one day, and some guy felt bad for him, so he harpooned him. Stuck a whaler's harpoon right through him and pulled him back onto the boat. Talk about a low-life existence. And there was a lady, mark this, there was a lady in England praying for his salvation ardently. He got back from that trip and he was born again, became born again. And he had to go back a few more times because he had a contract. But he did not commit any more of those sins and there was nobody there to hover over him to guard him and make sure that he didn't. Christ was with him. It was a real conversion. Then he got out of that and he went on and you know what happened in his life? He became a pastor, a man of God's word. He became a great preacher. This wretched, filthy, perverted, immoral human being became one of the greatest preachers of his day. And he wrote to him Amazing Grace because it was so amazing to him that saved a wretch like me. Paul the Apostle looks back on the sin of his life and he says, I am the chief of sinners, saved to be an example to all the other weirdos out there that God can give us new life. And he writes here, and he's thinking of himself. He's thinking of Israel. He's thinking of you, all those that would believe. And he says, where sin abounded, grace did overflow. Listen to the words of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. He tells of his own experiences, so much like ours. He said, In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object met my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree, the agonies and the blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but all my tears were vain. Where could my trembling soul be hid? For I the Lord had slain. A second look he gave that said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that you may live. Adam messed it all up right in the beginning. Jesus came to fix it all up at the appointed time, to put it in the simplest terms. Have you let him do that in your life? Do you believe that your sin nailed Christ to the cross? Or do you believe it was someone else's? You can go your whole life and think you're all right, but you're not. You're a wretch. You're either a self-righteous one or just plain one. But you are one. Robert Murray McShane, in the 1800s, came to a day in his life where November 18th, 1834, he admitted that his sin had nailed Jesus Christ to the cross, and that was his salvation day. In the Old Testament, when the Lord speaks of salvation in Christ, 
the Lord our righteousness. The Hebrew is Jehovah Sidkenu. And he wrote of how he finally came to realize that his sin had killed Christ on the cross, nailed him up there. And that Christ's words, Father, forgive them, were for him. These are the words. I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Sidkenu was nothing to me. I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure or John's simple page. But in when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah Sidkenu was nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet thought not my sins had nailed to the tree, Jehovah said, Canu, it's nothing to me. When free grace awoke me, when light from on high, then legal fear shook me, I trembled to die, no refuge, no safety, in self could I see, Jehovah said, Canu, my Savior must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished. With boldness I came to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Jehovah Sidkenu is all things to me. Jehovah Sidkenu, my treasure and boast. Jehovah Sidkenu, I ne'er can be lost. In thee I shall conquer by flood and by field. My cable, my anchor, my breastplate, my shield. Jehovah Sidkenu. He's either everything to you or he is nothing to you. If he is nothing to you, then you have no life, even if you're successful. And you have no really good relationships, even if you have some decent ones. But if he's everything to you, you have life. You will reign in life. You will never die. Your flesh will die. You'll get a brand new body, but you will live forever. And you will no longer have to deal with your sin and those of you born again already, take this truth. Meditate on it. And let your prayer be, God, get my eyes off myself. Get my eyes on Jesus Christ. And let me take that yoke that is easy and that burden that is light and enjoy my Christian walk. Enjoy the fact that I've been rescued already. And may I now rise to reign in life through superabounding grace. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we love you so much. You are so wonderful to us. Lord God, we thank you for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And not just forgiveness, but where sin has abounded, grace has overflowed. Lord Jesus, by your Spirit now fill us each one, that we may turn and meditate upon these things. Turn to meditate upon you, to understand that you are the issue. To understand that our sins are real and that's why we have a real Savior. O oh God Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, create within us a new heart and a new hope and a new trust in you. And send us forth rejoicing that we may bless and praise your holy name and awake each day expecting to be further blessed as the grace continues to overflow. May we all be drenched in it. And may our lives become a living testimony of it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.